This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated and we'll be studying Psalm 80 today. I encourage you to pull out your Bible instead of the bulletin. That'll be helpful later on. Um, if you're using the Sanctuary Bibles, it's on page 491, Psalm 80. So in our Psalm series that we're in this fall, we're letting the Psalms teach us how to pray real prayers for real life. And the lesson that we have today from Psalm 80, here's the lesson. It's how do you pray when you feel rejected by God? That's the question before us. How do you pray when you feel rejected by God? All of us, I expect, have stories and experience of being rejected in some way by the people in our lives at some time. And we all know that the impact that that can have, we carry it with us for the rest of our days until we receive healing from that. But what about when it's God who is the one that we feel is rejecting us? That's another matter. In just the last month, I'm going to share with you snippets of about three to four different conversations that I've had that reflect this place, coming from this place. And this is not one person. I've had multiple conversations. These are several different people, several different situations. Listen to what your own brothers and sisters have said. We tried to pray and listen. We thought we were following God. We thought he was leading us. And then this. Or another person said, right when I was following his lead and doing what I thought he was inviting me to, this happened. Or another said, I feel like God is playing games with me. Still another asked, is God cruel? Finally, I'll share this one. I took a risk. I tried to do something brave, and it feels like I got punished. Why did God do that? And the Psalms teach us from our family of faith from 3,000 years ago that when you're in that place and asking those questions, you're not alone. There's not something extra special wrong with you. And if those uh, quotes that I just read to you from the last month, and I mean the last month of my pastoral experience, we're not talking my entire career. That, that's just in the last month I've heard all of those things. Well, if that's true, and it is, then you're not alone today either. So then what do we do? How do the Psalms teach us to pray when we feel rejected, not by others, but by God himself? And here's the answer that Psalm 80 and other Psalms like it give to us. When you feel rejected by God, pray with courage passionately pleading for God to act and cling to him in spite of what you feel. Let me say that again. When you feel rejected by God, what do you do? You pray with courage, passionately pleading for God to act and clinging to him in spite of what you feel. So remember, courage is not feeling brave. Courage is doing what is brave even when you don't feel it. We'll talk about three components to courageous prayer this morning. Bravely examining yourself. Second, bravely explaining to God, telling the situation what you think you should do about it. Third, bravely expect that he will act. So bravely examine, bravely explain, and bravely expect. But first, before we get to those three, let's take a look at our psalm. Let's get into the context of this prayer. So it's attributed to a man named Asaph. Asaph was the chief musician under David and then Solomon. He was there when the temple was built and dedicated, and the glory and the cloud from God was so powerful, they all had to bow 
in worship as they sang, His love never ends. His love never ends. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. So that was the original Asaph. But then he had sons and descendants who were then also called the sons of Asaph. And it was their particular job to accompany the ritual sacrifices in the temple with musical worship. So they were musicians. And they sang the psalms as songs. And they gave thanks and they prayed and they invoked the name of the Lord their God. So so Asaph, the original, but also his descendants who might have been called by other names, but they were known as the sons of Asaph, or it's also possible later descendants took his name. So this could be an Asaph named after the original Asaph, but likely Psalm 80 was not written by the original Asaph, chief musician under David and, and Solomon. Indications are that this psalm was written in response to the destruction of the northern kingdom sometime after David and Solomon. Now remember that after the golden age of, of David and Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was by far the stronger and mightier, but the southern kingdom had Jerusalem, the temple, and the Davidic kingship. And Asaph, as a temple singer based in Jerusalem, hears of the destruction of the northern tribes, and he writes this prayer in response. Now the north and the south, they were not always friendly with each other. Sometimes they even fought. But when Asaph hears of what has happened, he responds with this prayer and this cry and this plea. And three times we see in verse 3, 7, and 19 this refrain, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And when he cries, restore, he's thinking of two things likely. The first is, save us from our enemies and restore the borders of ancient Israel, the golden age when we ruled from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates. Restore. Right now, as he's writing at the time, Jerusalem and a small ring of towns around it were about all that was left. And he's saying, we're weak. Make us strong again. Restore our borders and our fortunes. The second thing he might be crying out is, restore our unity. He grieves that there is this uh, civil war between the northern and the, and the southern kingdoms. And he might be crying out for all the tribes of Israel, restore us, Lord, make it as it should be. When we see this phrase, let your face shine, it means what we think it means. It means smile on us. Show us your favor. In contrast to in verse 16, with the enemies, he's, he prays, show them the rebuke of your face. So every mother in here, you know, you've got the death stare. Jan, I bet you've got a great death stare. Yeah, I bet you do. Julie has a great death stare. Dads, for whatever reason, it doesn't, what, my kids just laugh at me when I give them, the, I have other means, but Julie has a death stare. And I'll never forget when Toby was three and sitting at the table right next to her and was doing something foolish, and she just got right in his face with the death stare, and earnestly and with all sincerity, he cries out, Mama, don't eat me! <laughs> right. So the rebuke of God's face brings death to the enemies, but the smile of God's face brings life and salvation. And Asaph, he's pleading three times, let your face shine. And three times he names God as God of hosts, which means God of angel armies, God of the armies of heaven. He knows that God is strong. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here we see, you're enthroned upon the cherubim, those mighty angels whose special job is to enshrine the presence of God from which he shines forth in power and majesty. He also says, stir up your might. He knows that God has might, 
that can be stirred up. Stir it up. I know you're strong. Come and save us. All you would need to do is look our way with favor and look at our enemies with rebuke, and that would be enough. Just a look is all that we need from you. So Asaph doesn't doubt God's strength. We read this psalm, and it's clear. God is there. He is strong. But he doesn't seem to be doing anything. And that's Asaph's frustration. Has that ever been true for you? You know, I think for many of us, it's not that we doubt God's very existence or even that we doubt His power. You might say, God, I, I believe that all things are possible for you. We may not even doubt His love, but that makes it all the more confusing when our God of power and love doesn't seem to be doing anything. And it's, it's the case here in Psalm 80. Verses 8 to 13, Asaph is recounting Israel's history and using the image of a vine. He says, you brought the vine out of Egypt. You rescued us from Pharaoh. You cleared out the promised land. You drove out the nations. You planted this vine. And the vine became strong, and it bore fruit, and it extended from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River. We were powerful. Then verse 12, but now, why then? Have you broken down the walls of the vineyard so that all who pass by can pluck its fruit and pick from us? The boar from the forest, likely an allusion to the king of Assyria who destroyed the northern kingdom. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all who move in the field feed on this vine. So he's asking the question, why? Asaph is a man of faith, but he's frustrated. How long? And he's confused. Why, God? And to that we might add he's also bitter, hurt, and even embarrassed. That's the context of Psalm 80. What does it teach us about how to pray when we find ourselves in that same place? From that place, Asaph prays courageously. So we're going to talk about, again, bravely examine Bravely explain, tell God the situation and what you need him to do about it, and then bravely expect he is going to do something. So the first thing, and which requires a good deal of courage, is to bravely examine ourselves. In verse 12, Asaph asked the question, why have you done this? The answer is not found in our psalm. But go next door to Psalm 81, and we find the answer. God speaks. And Psalm 81, by the way, is also attributed to Asaph. So Asaph knows this. He asked the question. He also knows the answer. Here's God's answer. Verse 8 in Psalm 81. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a form. He's saying, do you remember when I told you that? And do you remember when that's exactly what you did? You bowed down to a foreign and strange God? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsel, saying, fine, I'll give you up to your own plans. We will see how that goes. 
Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. That's God's answer to the question, why? Sometimes our life is in shambles, and we feel that God has rejected us, but the reason is not that God has rejected us. It is that we have rejected him. The worst season in my life was brought about by a time when I made choices to disobey the Lord. And, and if you've been around long enough, you've heard my teaching, you know the story. I won't recount it all here. But basically, I knew what God taught regarding human sexuality and what he required from his followers, and I disregarded it. I said, maybe he doesn't really mean it, or maybe it's not really that important. And then my life began to fall apart for a season. Now, this is not true of everyone whose life is falling apart. It's not always something that you've done, but it is true for some, and it's true for some of you who are here today. You left the path of God's wisdom, and the consequences of your choices have caught up with you. We have this mistaken understanding about grace, that grace means we can live foolishly and avoid suffering for it because God is gracious. There's a whole book called Proverbs that's written to, to debunk that idea. Proverbs makes it very clear. There's a way of wisdom. There's a way of folly. If you depart from the way of wisdom, it will catch up with you. If you depart from the way of God's wisdom, your life will crumble to pieces eventually. And the very first psalm that's attributed to Asaph in this compilation of about 11 psalms here, uh, from 73 to 83, the very first one is asking this question, God, do you reward the righteous? Because I see the wicked prospering. And we find at the conclusion of the psalm, he says, indeed, you do reward the righteous in the end, and the wicked come to trouble. This is the wisdom of the Scriptures. Grace doesn't mean you can live foolishly and avoid the consequences. Grace means once you are brave enough to see it and to admit you have departed from the way of wisdom, and you ask the Lord for help, he will help rebuild your life one brick at a time. And it begins with you owning it, taking responsibility, refusing to blame someone else or even to blame your circumstances, as trying as they may be. And instead, when you realize, in this way, I have departed from God's wisdom, you own it. So if this is you this morning and you're realizing, yeah, my, my life is in shambles, and I, I have to admit, I think it's, it's because of choices that I've made. Then hear me now. Even now, God has not rejected you. Your life falling apart is not God rejecting you. It's him disciplining you. And remember last week's sermon. The Lord's discipline is not his rejection. It's actually his way of drawing you in closer and giving you a chance. When your life is falling apart because of choices that you've made and you finally start to see it, that is God loving you in a profound way, not rejecting you. And here's the really good news. You can never go too far that God can't find you and bring you back. And there's no hole that you can dig that's so deep that our Lord can't draw you up from it. 
And if all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put your Humpty Dumpty together again, which means everything you've tried, your solutions haven't worked. Everything you've tried to fix your life, it is not working. The Lord can do it. But it takes that bravery, that courage to raise that hand and to say, I need help. My life is messed up, and it's because of what I did, and I can't fix this alone. So when our life is falling apart and we, we feel like perhaps God has rejected us, the first thing we do, and this takes courage, is we bravely examine ourselves and we ask the question, have I departed from the way of wisdom? Have I departed from God's commands? His commands are life. Have I departed from them? Now, having said that, let me also emphasize here and say what I said before. Not everyone whose life is in shambles, it's because their folly is now coming back upon them. The whole book of Job was written to, to prove that point. Job suffered not because of his foolishness. Okay? Paul suffered a great deal, not because of his foolishness. And of course, the Lord Jesus suffered not for his foolishness, but for ours. And even Asaph himself belongs in this category. He knows that in the history of Israel, they were idolaters, but Asaph himself was a righteous man. And so he's saying, what am I left with? Why do my desires go unfulfilled? I desire a prosperous Israel reunited, walking in the light of God's favor. God, don't you want that too? So this is where Asaph is at, which brings us to the next point. After we bravely examine, and we can say, I know I'm not perfect, but truly I'm trying to follow the Lord, and I discern no major folly here, then the next thing to do is bravely explain to God what the problem is and what you need him to do about it. Yes, that is what I said. Tell God what's wrong and tell him what he should do about it. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches about prayer. He gives us the Lord's Prayer, and then he tells that parable about the friend who goes to the friend at midnight saying, I need three loaves. And in that parable, he uses the word importunity. Everybody say importunity. Importunity. Say it again. We're not used to this. I know. Say importunity. You'd think you were a liturgical church, but... <laughs> importunity means... Boldness bordering on rudeness. And Jesus, the Lord himself, gives you instructions. That is how you are to pray. Boldness bordering on rudeness. Take a look at verse 4 in our psalm. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves. This image of a woman kneading bread, and as she's kneading, because of the sorrow that is upon her and all around her, she's filling the dough and salting the bread with her own tears. Or at table, they're drinking the cup at a time that's meant for feasting and joy and friendship. They're so overwhelmed with sorrow that it's their tears that fill the cup that they drink. This is vivid. He's describing the situation. And this takes courage to pray this way. He comes just this short of accusing God of wrongdoing. I mean, notice how often he points the finger, you. When Julie and I do premarital counseling and we're instructing the young couple on good communication technique, we say, okay, don't start an argument with you, okay? 
It's accusatory. They'll get defensive. Use I statements. I feel sad when we eat the bread of tears. I feel angry when the nations mock us. Okay, Asaph did not go to handling conflict with God class. He comes out, both fingers pointing you. Okay, now let me read this to you because this Psalm 44 is even more ridiculous, so hold on to your seats. You have rejected us, this is Psalm 44, and disgraced us, and you've not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten the spoil. You've made us like sheep being slaughtered. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've scattered us among the nations. You made us the taunt of neighbors, derision, scorn, a byword, a laughingstock. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame covers my face in the sight of my enemy. So why is this not insolence? Because it's not. Why is this not disrespectful? Because it comes from faith. Belief. He's saying, God, I know who you are. I believe it. I just don't see you acting the way that I know you're supposed to, and it's tearing me apart. God loves that kind of prayer because it comes from faith. It comes from knowing him and refusing to believe that God is anything less than who he says he is. I think of the Syrophoenician woman. She asks Jesus for help. Her daughter has a demon, and he puts up these barriers because he's testing her. And she pushes through every barrier and finally says, even the dogs eat up the crumbs under the table. And Jesus, after testing her, he rewards her with the most glowing accolades that he can put on anybody. This woman, great is her faith. No one in Israel has faith like this woman. That's what it's like to pray like Asaph, like the Syrophoenician woman. And after telling God the problem, Asaph tells God what he should do about it. Three times is the refrain, restore our fortunes. Let your face shine so we'll be saved. Do this. It's repeated. It's a passionate plea for the God of angel armies to do something. Not just once, not twice, but three times he pleads with God. And again, I think of a gospel story, Bartimaeus. I love blind Bartimaeus, the blind man sitting by the side of the road. He hears that Jesus is coming. He says, I've heard stories about that man. That man can heal the blind. So he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And do you remember what the crowd does? You're making a scene. Yeah, hush. Please, be quiet. That's embarrassing. And what is Bartimaeus? I love Bartimaeus. He ignores them completely, and he cries out, all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So when you feel that God is rejecting you and your prayers, and those voices are even beginning to come in, oh, he's forgotten. He's not listening. It's time to give up. This is embarrassing. I want you to do like Bartimaeus and ignore those voices and cry all the more. I read to you from Psalm 44 a minute ago. Here's the end of Psalm 44. There the psalmist doesn't give up. He doesn't change gods. He doesn't change tactics. He cries all the louder, and he ends the psalm saying, Rise up, arise, awaken. Why are you sleeping? Come to our help. Arise. 
So we tell God what is wrong. We describe the situation. We do it vividly with detail. We tell him exactly, why do you feel rejected by him? And then with equal vividness, tell him what you need him to do. I won't share the details of this story because I didn't reach out to the family in time, but uh, there was a time several years ago when a family in this church uh, was in a months-long, very difficult season, and at the end of it was a major catastrophic injustice that would be done to them. And those who knew and were surrounding were praying and crying out. And we were saying, God, you, far be it from you. You can't let this happen. And I remember one night in my apartment, through tears, the only time I've ever prayed this way, I said, God, you can't do this. You, you can't. I don't know what else to pray except you can't do this. And in that situation, the, re- the resolution of that situation was the most miraculous Red Sea parting, God intervening, what just happened, end to that story. So we tell God the situation, we tell him what we need him to do, and then we do that again. And then we do that again. And then we do that again. We pray boldly, and then we wait upon the Lord, because the last thing, the last way to pray courageously is to bravely expect that God is going to do something. When you feel that God has rejected you, don't give up and don't give in, but cling to God in spite of what you feel. Right action here may have nothing to do with how you feel, but it has to do with the words that are on your lips. Bravely expect God to do something as you pray. And here I think of the widow's two pennies. She puts two pennies in the treasury, and Jesus says she put in more than everyone else who gave out of their abundance because that was all she had to give. So when you don't feel like trusting, but you choose to trust and to pray, and you put the words on your lips, something's going to happen and something's going to change in the spiritual realm. And that prayer, that prayer, when you don't feel like it, but you do it anyway, that is more precious to God than a thousand hallelujahs when all is well. And it's true. We don't know how God will respond. We don't know what he will do but we expect that he will do something. So Jesus, how does he fulfill the prayers of Asaph? Because Jesus is the answer to Asaph's prayers, but centuries after Asaph has prayed them. Look at verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine that you've planted. Well, Jesus didn't just look down, he came down. And he didn't just have a regard for the vine, he became the vine. He said, I am the vine. You can be my branches. And if you stay with me, you'll always be fruitful. And this vine will never be cut down and never be burned again. In verse 15 and 17, Asaph is saying, have regard for the the stock of your right hand, the son whom you've made strong for yourself. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. And in this, Asaph is crying out for the king of Israel. Oh, God, strengthen the king, and everything will be okay. Well, how about this? God becomes the king. God becomes the son who is made strong. And how about instead of just restoring the borders of Israel and reuniting the southern and northern kingdom, he restores the borders of human nature. 
from eternal death, he now restores us to eternal life while reuniting not just the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, but every tribe and and nation and tongue under the confession of one faith. And then what what about Psalm 44, the guy who really got worked up and cries, arise, awaken, rise up. How about Jesus rising from the dead? He answers the prayer. So God cares for your life. He cares about what's troubling you. And you can pray with confidence, knowing also that every cry, every prayer, every question has ultimately its answer in the cross of Jesus, in his resurrection, and in his promise that he's coming back. And that on that day, he will raise you from your grave. And on that day, the only why question that you or I will be asking will be, why, God, were you so good to me? Why were you so good to me? So to feel as if you're rejected by God, that's a normal experience. When that happens, pray with courage. Especially, bravely examine your life. Have I departed from the wisdom of God? If so, repent. Second, bravely explain to God the situation. Tell him with importunity what is wrong and what you are asking him to do about it. Be specific and vivid. Third, bravely expect God to act, to work, to do something, because it's only a matter of time before he will. Above all, don't give up. And don't give in. Don't give in to the lie that God has rejected you because he has not. And that is the truth, no matter how you feel. If you seek him, God will never reject you. And in fact, few things please the Lord's heart more than bold prayers from a faint spirit. Amen.